Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 300. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the internationally acclaimed and award-winning artistic director of Vachis 8, the incomparable Barney Smith. Quite the introduction. Thank you very much. Obviously goes with the name. Yeah, see. <laughs> Congratulations on your 300th episode. See, that, look at the. See, I know it's a. And so you're you're calling you're you're talking to us from 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 the United Kingdom. You're based out of London. Yeah, I'm sitting right in the middle of London. Uh, anyone who's ever been might know a place called St Paul's Cathedral. Um, mm-hmm. And I am in a actually in a church. We can talk about why I'm in the church. Um, about 200 yards from St Paul's Cathedral, built by the same guy who built. St. Paul's Cathedral, Christopher Wren. This was his really? sort of trial project. Uh, and there is a helicopter flying around overhead because obviously they're looking for me. I've done something wrong. Um, so I'm sorry if people if people hear that. But yeah, I'm right in the middle of London, which is a, a very cool place. You're, as we said, you're an award-winning artistic director, musician, and you've Grammy, Grammy nominated? Unfortunately, only nominated at the moment. Okay. All right, all right. Hopefully, still got a few discs left in me, so uh, yeah. we'll see if we can up that to award winning. Um, and, and you just recently came out with a with a your second solo album, Bach, correct? Yeah. Um. So, I mean, just to explain to people a little bit about what I do, I'm the easiest way probably to explain me is I I am an opera singer and conductor. That's like the the easiest way to, for people to sort of understand. And I don't necessarily apply to the cliches of people's. Um, thoughts on those two things because the singing I do whilst I'm trained to sing opera most of the singing I do is actually in a group Uh, oh yeah you got my website here we go look at that (laughs) and um, and that group is called Votchers 8 so uh, that's a really bad name and we can talk about that later Um, but it essentially means there's eight singers and we sing unaccompanied music unaccompanied core music we have a big presence on places like Spotify and YouTube and we travel the world singing concerts and we do about 120 concerts a year all over the world. And then alongside that, I actually conduct that group as well as singing it. Um, but then I also conduct orchestras, you know, big symphony orchestras and choirs and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and it's a cool thing to do. But then in my free time, um, I, you know, in order to, to do what I do as my day job in inverted commas, which is to sing in that group, you have to forego your own solo singing because most mm-hmm. singers are trained as solo singers. And so then... I also make my own individual albums, which, you know, as much as anything else is scratching an itch for me, but uh, luckily people enjoy listening to them. Some people enjoy listening to them. So uh, it's a very fun thing to do. And I just came out, yeah, as you say, with my second one of those called Bach, which kind of does what it says in the tin. It's me singing Bach, <laughs> the best, best musician ever, Bach, <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach. But then like your first one was, was, uh, um, was Handel, right? Exactly. And that, that was a that was a lockdown project, actually, for me, because, you know, like most musicians in lockdown, we were uh, obviously couldn't couldn't get out of the house and, and do very much. And so all of the touring, you know, I normally spend six, seven, eight months of the year on the road. And so suddenly I was spending six, seven or eight days of the year on the road. So um, I had a lot of time to do other things. And at the same time, my wife was pregnant and I, I kind of had this um had this idea that once I had a child, my life would be completely taken over by having a child and who knows what would happen to my music. So 
I actually just asked a couple of my friends if they'd come down to the church I'm sitting in and we'd have a sing song. So just so that I had a document of my voice, because most of my CD recordings are all with Voches 8. So you can definitely hear me, but you can't hear me singing solo repertoire. So I just thought, yeah, I'll do that. And, uh, you know, by hook or by crook, it turned out to be quite good. And some, you know, I was approached to release it and yeah, it all went, all went from there for that one. And that it was received so well that we thought we'd make the second follow-up bark. And I'm actually starting a third one in a couple of weeks time. Well, what's the third one? Well, now, now you, you, you've kind of set a pattern with like Handel and Bach, and now you're going to... Yeah, so the next, well, the next one's going to be Pergolesi, who's a bit more of a niche composer, but okay. uh, still of the Baroque, but very well known for writing a piece called Starbuck Martyr, which is a okay. duet. So I'm going to be doing that, um, yeah, starting in, starting in a couple of weeks' time. I should okay. say that my um, for, for anybody who's into niche things, uh, the, the voice type that I sing is also very niche. Counter-tenor. I'm a countertenor, exactly. And that's quite, it's not as unusual these days as it used to be, um, but it's still quite an unusual thing. Essentially, I'm a guy who sings quite high. So, you know, I'm talking to you here in my in my natural modal voice, but when I sing, I sing in my falsetto, which right. is a different part of the voice. Um, and it's quite specific to Baroque music right. because back in the um, Baroque times, that the absolute stars of the show were the castrati. So the, they used to, as boys were going through puberty, they used to obviously castrate them to stop their voices from deepening. Right. Um, and, and it created these sort of very weirdly shaped humans because they kind of had some hormones, but not the rest with very strong, strident voices. And they would get all these amazing operatic parts. You know, they would literally be the kind of Lionel Messi of the Baroque era was a castrati singer. So, of course, these days uh, they don't allow that kind of stuff to go down. So um, those parts need to be done by sometimes by women, but to be really in inverted commas, might get in trouble for this, authentic. Um, it should be done by man. So right. um, those are the parts historically that countertenors have, have covered. And that was my training. So that's that's why I lean to those composers of the 17th and 18th century the handles and barks of this world right no with the, as you mentioned with the counter tenor piece is that something that is um everybody talks about there's a difference between training something and just being talented in something is there how much of that is is it more training to actually sing a counter tenor yeah, very, or is that very insightful question yeah. you know it probably differs from person to person but i would say it's much more nurture than it is nature so okay. with a natural voice like your baritone my for me i'm about i'm a baritone sort of thing there that that element of your voice becomes a lot more formed without you training it necessarily so mm. you you either have you know in inverted commas you have a good voice whether you've trained it or not um and then if you like singing and people like your voice you can build the muscles train the sounds all that sort of stuff you know widen your range with the falsetto, with the countertenor part of it, every, every guy can make the noise, mm. but, but without training, it tends to be quite weak. Right. Um, and so, you know, and certainly when I, I, you know, I do a little bit of teaching and when I'm working with younger singers, it's very noticeable for them, things like stamina and all that sort of stuff. It's much more noticeable that, that they're, that the muscles need that training in the falsettos, in the falsettists than it is in the people who are singing in there in their natural instrument. So yeah, more nurture than nature, but nature I think still has quite a big part to play in the, in the sound that you make because the sound we make is 
um, as singers is very much based on our um, on our physiology. You know what shape we are, how we resonate, the, the size and makeup of our vocal folds, all those sorts of things. Um, and of course, you <laughs> you can't change that <laughs> to, to a certain up to a certain point. Do you feel yourself in your role as being like the artistic director of Botches 8 and also as your own solo career as well? Do you lean more into the educational aspects of the craft or do you lean more into the the actual artistic level of the craft? Sure. I mean, I would say I'm a performer with a conscience. That's how I probably how I would describe myself. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is that when we started... Um, Rochers 8 in 2005, myself, I found it with my brother Paul, and we kind of had a joint mission, really. The mm. mission was, A, to set up a group that we could tour the world with that achieved great things artistically, but not B, actually, number one. So just on a, as important, but on a different track, we wanted to give back to our community. And we're very aware that music and the, you know, the creative arts full stop does not get the input from government level that it requires so therefore not every young person even adult is fortunate enough to be able to go out and experience music and creativity as much as we think would benefit society and you know there's so much science isn't there that, that tells us what right. a difference 10 minutes of creativity art or music in a child's life can make to their development yet we don't seem to be able to put it on the curriculum so our found, we, have, we set up a foundation at the same time which specifically lobbies and targets that. So we do everything from, you know, run workshops for kids from three up to adults of 83, um, all the way through to going out and finding areas of specific uh, creative poverty and setting up whatever we can in those areas. And we, we do that uh, here in the UK, but we also now have a foundation in the US as well and a foundation in France. Mm. Uh, and it, yeah, so it, it, I would say of myself, my primary role day to day is to ensure Rochers 8 is nailing it, essentially, and that we're doing great things artistically to maintain our presence in the industry. But the foundation, which is now very much run by my brother, um, is trying to achieve the same thing, but for, for the community. Is Vaches 8 the foundation actively or passively finding these, quote unquote, music deserts or art deserts to actually set yeah, up? I mean where you have your foundation to be based out of? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's an active pursuit for us. We're, we're out there looking for areas that require support, then working out how we can go about implementing um, support in that area. And a lot of it's to do with, you know, actually delivering the workshops themselves is it's quite a straightforward thing. I mean, the, the, the two most difficult things, well, the, the one most difficult thing, to be honest, is sustainability, because it's really right. easy to go into, you know, a deprived area of, New York, say, where they just don't have music education and do a nice day of music education, sing a concert with everyone at the end of it and leave. What good does that really do? Of course, it, it has an impact, but the sustainability of that impact is going to be limited. So mm. we're looking to find those sorts of areas and then looking to engage support financially, which might then have some sustainability to it itself and then put programs in place that might see a child from the age of eight to 13 have a provision of singing in their life every week, for example. Because then, you know, they've had the opportunity, they've experienced it, and that they're benefiting on the basis that it, they can connect with it and make of it what they want. If at the age of 13, 
they never choose to sing anything again, well, they're going to have benefited from the experience and they're going to have made that choice. And it's a choice they've been able to make. And that's what, what we would like to see, um, as well as all the cognitive impact it can have, which is a very positive thing. You know, even, even for me, I notice when I, you know, I, I'm in the middle of a three week break and I notice a difference in myself when I haven't been working with music on a daily basis. After a week, everything in my mind is slowing down and not operating as, as well. And that's a, a, yeah, a fascinating thing. Do you have, so I'm also curious as being as a counter tenor, but you're also a conductor at this, uh, also that's mm -hmm. another hat you wear. Do you feel, I'm very curious about this as somebody that is a conductor, do you subconsciously have preferences of what musical instruments are playing at any specific time or as a is, is there one thing that's like now nah, let's yeah. forget about the that you know all the brass for a bit like is there i'm always curious about how that works that's interesting i mean we you know we're, we're all susceptible aren't we to to our own taste uh, there are certainly instruments that i prefer to others but something <laughs> that i love when i conduct that i find fascinating when i conduct um, more so than when I actually listen to music, because it's a bit more subconscious for me when I listen, is how composers use an orchestra mm. to paint a picture. So, you know, I'll put it straight out there and say, I really like the oboe and I don't massively like the clarinet, for example. If I was going to listen to something, I would, I would always pick an oboe concerto over a clarinet concerto. But when I'm conducting an orchestra, those instruments, they don't become so much... It, I, my mind is moving away a little bit from that sort of personal preference. And instead, I'm almost in a, a creative mindset, trying to build color. And so I see both of them as tools, I suppose a little bit like if you're an artist, you know, right. if someone said to you, what's your favorite color, red or blue, then you probably have a preference. But then actually, if you're painting a piece of art, you view red and blue as assets that you can use to achieve the greatest gamut of color possible. And I think it's a similar thing right. to, to being a conductor. Um, and it's something that always fascinates me and that the compositions that I enjoy conducting the most are the people I think who are probably the greatest orchestrators. So the people who are using all of the different instruments in the orchestra to create the best colors and effects. People would ask like when they hear, when they hear a musical piece is like, the question is, is like you just mentioned that analogy of painting a picture. Uh, some people would say it feels like you're telling a story. Other people say it feels like you just took me on a journey. Is there one, uh, you know, preferred analogy over another that you seem to gravitate more towards? Not necessarily. I mean, when I'm conducting, Nirvana for me yeah. is that I am moved emotionally beyond being present in the room. And that's, you know, I, it doesn't happen that often. Right. Because when you when you spend as much time as I do in front of musicians and hearing, you know, I have this with Voches 8. I hear Voches 8 every day of my life, <laughs> more more than I need to right. <laughs> for, you know, for whatever reason. And so the effect of eight unaccompanied voices becomes completely almost I'm almost numb to it. But then I'll go away for two or three weeks and I'll walk back in and you know, I'll hear three or four of the guys practicing in the corner of the room before rehearsal starts. And I'm hit by, you know, just how amazing that right. it is to hear four voices unaccompanied. And I think it's this, um, you know, the same when, when I conduct an orchestra. But there are moments 
when you know i have one on stage we were doing a concert two or three weeks ago it was a choral concert we were this cool piece called um it's a, a, a mass setting by a swiss composer called frank martin i've never done it before and in the sanctus it's just the music is just incredibly beautiful and suddenly you know it must be i've never really bothered to analyze but it must all be very uh, all to do with the chemicals in your brain the amount of um chemical release in my brain just overtook my body and i was just on stage and i could i mean i could have been anywhere it was like i was on some sort of sort of trip and so <laughs> and that for me is nirvana because it means you're making and living the music in the moment it's so so easy as a as a classical musician uh, i can only speak from the perspective of a classical musician because I, I don't particularly do pop music to sort of get very technical with um what you know everything's written down on the page in front of you it comes with the notes you should play how long each note should be what the tempo should be what the dynamics should be what the performance instruction is you know everything is dictated to you and so you can become enslaved to the score and this moment of nirvana is just freedom and that for me is what i'm always heading for when you see music written out is that a recipe or more advice at that point you ask great questions because you know if I was you know, I would always tell my students it's advice it, you know it's your job as a performer and as a musician to take what the composer's written and lift it off the page find your you know in an ideal world you as a musician have an emotional response to the music that has been written by the composer and you present essentially your response to it so you become a conduit in the sense that it's flowing through you right. but that can be you know depending what your job is that can be difficult to achieve and i think that it takes quite a lot of experience to be able to stand on a stage and be open enough in front of however many hundreds or thousands of people to allow yourself to be open enough to let that music truly flow in and out of you and a lot of the time, because people are slightly inhibited by being on a stage, the first thing that they do is they move into the technical realm and they start to use the music almost as like an excuse to, to close themselves down and start operating as a technical instrument rather than as a human. But something I say to all of my conducting students is you will you are ready to be a proper conductor when you can stand on a podium which by the way is the loneliest place in the world to have to stand when you can stand on a podium and you can truly be yourself. Hmm. And I, you know, that's not just how you make the music, but that's just how you interact. You know, when you stand on a podium, you're essentially leading the room. People always think it's a, the most important thing for a conductor is that they're a, it's a musical position, but actually one of the most important parts of being a conductor is managing the room. And that of course, is all about interpersonal skills. And so when you get on the podium and there's all these musicians looking at you and you're like, oh, <laughs> the first thing you do is you start acting up, you know, in whatever way that is. Some people go into themselves. Some people become, you know, they try to be funny. And of course, we all know, you know, it's like going, it's like going to a party and it being awkward. It's that sort of thing. You've got to get over that hurdle. Um, and I think yeah, it's the same with, with being on stage as well. They're very, very difficult things. But yeah, not allowing yourself to get locked up by all of the information on the page it is critical. So you mentioned before, like with, with Handel was your kind of like your COVID project. Um, and, and, and Vacha say you during COVID, you guys created what was the, the digital Academy. 
Yeah, we created a digital academy. We created a digital concert series called Live from London. Right. Um, all that stuff kicked off, yeah. What do you see in the field of music? Any like um, innovations or changes that are going to be kept in the field of music due to COVID? You know, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, to say that, you know, it's a, we're, we're dinosaurs in the classical music industry. It's a cliche to a point, but it's, it was also true to a point as well. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of, of music and concerts being presented via the medium of streaming was mm. something that very few arts organisations, um, you know, taken on board and were working with prior to the pandemic. And now everybody's into it. And I think at first there was this reaction, which was like, oh, we can't do this because then people will stop coming to concerts. And, you know, we, we make our living from um, people coming to concerts and buying tickets. And I can totally understand that perspective. But I think if COVID's taught us anything, it's that digital music will never replace live music. Right. You know, we all know that the CD isn't going to exist in five years time or until it comes back in 30 years time, like the vinyl is now. But, you know, it's, it's almost, I mean, it's as good as a dead cert that yeah. CD. I mean, how many of your listeners who are listening now who listen to podcasts still have a CD player? Right. Um, and I think that there was a fear that the same thing would happen to the live concert if digital streaming took over. But I think we can say for, with dead certainty that that won't happen because the impact of hearing live music in a room it's just something that no matter how hard you try, you cannot recreate. So there was a little bit of a people were standoffish to begin with. But now I think that the industry is embracing it in a in a very positive way, because in order for people to m maintain interest in classical music, in order for us to maintain an audience, we need to remain relevant to society. And one of the biggest problems with classical music is most of the guys and gals who wrote it Unfortunately, most of the guys who wrote it died 300 years ago. And so how does that music remain relevant? Well, you know, why is history relevant? You know, the, we are a product of our history and our culture is a product of our history. So understanding and maintaining all of that historical content and which music is a big part is important. And we can go to, you know, there's a whole lecture in that. But the point is that to the next generation, if we want them to open the door to classical music and we want them to see whether or not they're interested in it we need to meet them at their level and that is digital media and so for the classical music industry which was generally speaking pretty behind the times uh covid has been a very good experience because every arts organization in the world probably these days has streamed something and so they're beginning to understand how to how to bring their music to people you know using da, 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 dum, the internet <laughs> which is the greatest marketing tool at our disposal is it not right. <laughs> it's right it kind of democratizes entertainment in that sense and then you're able to and also you're making classical music more accessible to a larger audience as that's well as been extreme, a, a huge boon right that's the magic word accessibility yep. yeah yep. it is a huge boon but it was also quite sweet how scared we were of it to start with so you mentioned earlier, as we said, that you have two solo albums out. And for those that are listening, that is that that understand music on kind of a surface level, the difference between, say, a, a solo singer and then, say, an ensemble group. What are the the benefits and drawbacks of being a part of an ensemble group as as opposed to uh, doing a solo album? 
You know, can I just say, I've been interviewed by a lot of people from the music industry and they just don't ask such insightful questions. <laughs> That's an amazing question. <laughs> um, well, the first thing to say is that to sing in an ensemble, essentially what one thing that we're often going for in ensemble is the element of team. And so leaving a little bit of the individuality at the door when you walk in it is an important thing, but not too much of the individuality. And one of the nice things about the human voice is you can always tell whose voice it is from a singer. They're very unique. Everyone's voice is very unique. So, mm. But in what we do, the individuality element of it is all about being able to exercise a great level of control. And that's specifically something we work very hard on is how loud and or soft we sing. So we tend to sing a lot softer in a choir, generally mm. speaking, because the, the louder that we begin to sing, the more what we call on voice it becomes. And the more on voice you go, the more it sounds like Barney. Um, and the other big part, significant part of it is the use of vibrato. And vibrato occurs in a voice because when you sing, you're applying essentially strain onto the muscles. And in order for them to cope with the strain, they vibrate. You know, if I asked you to stand up and hold your chair out to the side, your, your arm would start shaking. Um, that's your muscles refreshing in order that they can hold, continue to hold the chair up. And it's a similar thing with the voice. And of course, because this, there was a necessity for the voice to do this, um, over the past four or 500 years, uh, we have turned it into an aesthetic uh, object uh, now, which is where we get this idea of the use of vibrato. Mm. So we're working to control that. So when I sing solo, a massive benefit for me as a singer is the fact I can operate with so much control. I can choose when I vibrate and all that sort of stuff. I can sing softer and back to this idea of creating color. I've probably got a wider color palette than some singers who just sing solo because I'm so adept at singing at the softer dynamics. Right. Um, Intonation is another huge thing. Um, you know, people cannot listen to choral music if it's out of tune. Mm. And people would say, oh, I can't hear out of tune. You know, I, pr I promise you, you can. If I played you an <laughs> an out of tune chord, <laughs> I promise you, you, it gets to a point. You know, when you sing um, with instruments, that the margin for error for the singer is much larger because generally speaking, the instruments are playing, let's say a piano, a piano is just a tuned instrument. So the piano is playing in tune and you as a singer, therefore your whoever's listening to you already has a real idea of what the key is. So if you ever so slightly drift and sometimes it's stylistic to drift, you know, mm. think of blues or that sort of stuff or drift up to note from the bottom. It, it's not in any way off putting to the audience because there is such a defined pitch center from the, from the keyboard. Right. When you sing a cappella, when you sing unaccompanied, that, that just doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> and then we get also into um, the way that we tune. So a piano is uh, not, the, a piano is actually um, out of tune instrument. Um, and there, there'll be lectures you can watch about this on YouTube. Um, but as a, as a vocal group, we're looking to, to work with harmonics. So the bottom end of the group make great in tune fifths. And that starts the series of harmonics. And then the parts above are actually tuning up 
uh, into those into the harmonic series. So, for example, I would if I was trying to sing a major third in a chord, which is the note that makes a chord sound happy, I would actually have to detune that note compared to the piano by uh, 16 cents, that's 16% of a semitone in order okay. to be perfectly in tune. Um, and so the nuance of intonation is something that you learn about and have to be expert at. And then when, so then when you go out of the ensemble environment, you're operating at a level of intonation that a, no, a number of singers, I mean, a lot of people rely on their ear for it, but don't ever particularly learn or know about it. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things that, that, that benefit, um, which is great. And so it, it helps uh, very much when the instrumentalists walk in the room, you know, you're used to singing with other people. So then you're working with instrumentalists, you can actually sing with them rather than just asking them to sit behind you and play along whilst you do your thing. So yeah, loads, loads of stuff, which is very good. Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about as well as that you mentioned, like the origin of Vachis 8. Where did that name come from? <laughs> I was having a bad day because nobody gets, <laughs> I feel so compliment you on saying it correctly. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, my personal life story is that I was a chorister at Westminster Abbey. That's how I got into singing. Um, and it was, it was a, my, you know, my mum, my dad's job um, was moving to London. So my mum was down looking for a job and also um, looking for schools for me and my brother to move to. And she went into Westminster Abbey as a tourist and saw that the poster on the wall that said, you know, this could be your son with a little choir boy. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, a year later, you know, Paul and I enjoyed singing at school. So a year later, we, we were there. Um, then when we left there, we went into a, a choir called the Millennium Youth Choir, which is part of the Royal School of Church Music. And that's the kind of choir that takes people from sort of 16 to 22. And so we, we have made loads of great friends there. And when we graduated um, that choir, we, we just decided to start having people over to our parents' house at the college holidays. And we would go and sing in the local cathedral and raise money and give it to a local charity. Hmm. Uh, and we were invited. I have no idea how. I still have no idea how. We were invited to go to Italy to sing in a, well, what we thought was a festival. And, you know, there we were, 21 years old, and someone was offering us to go to Venice. They were paying all our expenses, so it was essentially a free holiday. And all we had to do was sing seven concerts, and that's what we thought. Anyway, then we got there. And we had to do the concerts, but it was also a competition. <laughs> and, um, one of the categories was jazz and pop music. And so we'd grown up listening to groups like Take Six, The Manhattan Transfer, um, Gene Perling and his Singers Unlimited, you know, the High Lows, these are great American groups. And so we just did some of their music and we actually won this competition that we didn't even <laughs> really know we were entering. <laughs> people started offering us work. <laughs> And Paul and I thought, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, this, th there might be a business in this. Um, so we just threw the kitchen sink at it, to be honest. And we set up this foundation. And that's how it all began. But we needed a name. We didn't have a name because we were not really a group. <laughs> so <laughs> we needed a name quickly. <laughs> so we thought, well, Voce sounds Italian for voices. And the number eight, that's how many of us there are. Um, it turns out that... Voces, V-O-C-E-S, is actually Spanish for voices, not Italian. So okay. it's actually Voces. <laughs> Voces Ocho. <laughs> so we managed to pick a name that meant nothing, um, <laughs> that nobody can say or spell. Um, 
And uh, yeah, yeah, here we are. What twenty, close to twenty years later. Um, yeah. Still, still, you know, working hard to enable people to say it correctly, of which we're doing very well. I I thought it was like a, I thought it like was initials for something like you know vo- vocals English something so I thought it was like see, see. I wish I wish yeah. no I was just you know twenty one years old never thought for a million years that it would be anything other than a name on a piece of paper for the next fifteen minutes um, <laughs> yeah I've actually been in a branding meeting today um because we're we're starting a new uh, upper voice ensemble in America. And so we've been having a branding meeting about uh, naming it. And, oh, we've got these, you know, this great branding company on board. And the types of conversations that we're having are absolutely amazing. And I sort of think, I wonder what name we'd come up with for ourselves if we went through this process again. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of apprehension with the term AI. What I'm kind of curious as an artistic director, where, Mm. where do you sit on this? Well... Uh, interesting that you should ask because I've just done a project with um, a guy who's very much at the forefront of AI in music. His name's Ed Newton Rex, um, and you know I have to be honest and say I'm relatively ignorant to it. Um, but I had a long chat with him about about the whole thing, and he says that you know AI will never replace the human brain, and a bit like we were talking about live music in the room you know, that AI will never be able to create in the way a human can create, but that it's a hugely positive step forward because it can enable creativity. So this piece that we were doing with him, he um, wanted to write a piece of choral music, had lots of ideas for the music, but was really struggling with the text. So he found a piece of poetry from a, a work by Benjamin Britten that he liked, and he put it into, I think, essentially ChatGBT or something similar. Um, and asked for ChatGPT to write a poem in response to it. And that was the creative impetus that he needed to then enable him to go through a process of refinement with the AI bot. And he says, you know, this piece of music would never have come into existence if I hadn't had essentially the AI as a sounding board. So I think that from his perspective, it, it can be it can be a very enabling thing. I, you know, I know people have... Um, serious um, concerns about how it's going to replace musicians. But, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, <clears throat> we've had samples in the music industry for a, a very long time. Um, and musicians still have jobs. And it comes back to that thing that, that you know, nobody, you know, it, it is possible to tell when something is human and when it isn't. And I have no idea how AI can go advance from where it is now. Um all I would say is that I think that there is always going to be enough space for the 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 feeling I have from from my own personal interaction with it and from talking to this guy Ed is that there'll always be space for uh, excuse the pun AI and humans to to live in in perfect harmony, um, and that's for me an exciting thing. But it's kind of similar to what we were saying about the digital sphere. It's probably we're probably best advised to embrace it and figure out how we can work with it than to try and push it into the corner and hope it goes away because it's not going to go away, is it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, utilizing it as a tool, not as a competition, is going to be advantageous. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. So, so Barney, if people want to follow you and learn more about Vaches Eight and also uh, your own music, where's the best place they could go to? 
Well, I mean, Vulture's 8 is very, uh, well, it's all over the internet. We record for Universal, so, you know, <laughs> you, you can imagine. <laughs> but we have some great videos. People love to listen to us on YouTube. Um, so if you just type Vulture's 8 into YouTube, we have a very active channel there. Spotify, uh, Vulture's8.com, Facebook, all that sort of stuff, all the usual places. Um, it'd be lovely to interact with people. And we're, we tend to be, um, we do our very best to um, get back to people when they reach out. We also do a lot of touring. So um, we'll be in America for a month in October, a couple of shows in New York. That's where you are, Barney. It'd be lovely, yeah. lovely to see you. Come along to the show. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, we, we're going out and about all over the place. So right. it'd be very nice to see you. And actually something that people might find um, interesting is that we've just released a, an album with Paul Simon, okay. which I think is one of the most interesting things I've ever done. Um, getting in a room with him. <laughs> when You know what? If ever you wanted an argument against AI, yeah. <clears throat> with Paul Simon, is it? I mean, this guy is yeah. just like, there is no way a computer could ever simulate what, what is going on in his head. Right. It's incredible. He, he walks in the room. He's the nicest guy in the world. <clears throat> walks in the room. He's got absolutely no idea of what he wants to get from the day. He has, doesn't need to get anything from the day. Walks in. He's like, okay, well, let's start here. Yeah, sing, sing something. Oh, yeah, I don't know that. Sing something else. Oh, no, that's interesting. You know, and it just goes, and it's just the way his mind sort of unravels in front of you. You see this creative process unravel. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And so we, we did this project with him um, called Seven Psalms. It's his latest um, disc. And, um, yeah, that's a cool thing. It's quite difficult. To, <laughs> it's our, our input, I would say, is subtle. Because <laughs> 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 the disc is uh, essentially him playing guitar and singing and his wife, Edie, duets occasionally but then there's a secondary layer of chimes gongs he's massively into microtonalism so okay. that's like on the piano we have like the 12 semitones in the scale um but he's interested in all the space in between those semitones and so he's got like all these gongs and stuff and we're all in there recording a load like it's some of the most difficult singing i've ever had to do in my life he'd be like <laughs> he'd be like oh. he'd be like no a bit sharp he's like oh. And you can barely hear the difference yourself. And he's like, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't know why I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so people should definitely check that out, especially if you're called Simon Pham. Um, right. you know, the poetry, ChatGBT could never come up with the poetry he comes out with. Um, that's for sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, all over the internet, go and check it out. But come to a live show because there's nothing quite like live music, is there? Yeah, perfect. And then they can find your stuff too. Is that at barnabysmith.net? Yeah. Yeah, barnesmith.net. Yeah, again, hit me up on Spotify. All my albums are up there. Latest one's called Bach. Uh, you know, get in, pour yourself a glass of red wine, sit down, stick it on with yeah. John Wine for the day. You never know. There you go. You might find something yeah. you like. Have a drink yeah. with Barney right there. Drink That's some wine it. with Barney. Yeah, he'll sing <laughs> to you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. Well, Brian, this has been a great pleasure talking to you. I've had a blast talking to you. This has been great. Well, thank you for having me. You ask, as I say, you ask incredibly insightful questions. Well, I, well, I have, I have, I have to live up to the name. See, that's what I have to do. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Are you going to come to the show in New York? See, what I, what I should do, I'll get, I'll get, I'll make two t-shirts. One says I'm with Barney Smith and have the air pointing one way. And then I'll wear the other t-shirt says I'm with Barney Smith and the air pointing the other way. See? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you. And congratulations on your 300th episode. Oh, oh, oh.
there's a term like where a lot of uh a lot of um hang on bernie that's what i love about this i can timestamp it and then once it's all edited it'll be so smooth and people are like wow bernie's asking bernie great questions but yeah i'm gonna timestamp this (laughs) real (laughs) quick